When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they I felt, felt I this right. I was so and I just happy. thought, well, I had figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Clatter, where true personal stories about science help us to discover how weird and wonderful it is to exist in this world and be a human. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and here at Story Clatter, we're all about making science more accessible. So this week, we're going DIY. No fancy labs, no million dollar telescopes, just a whole lot of curiosity. A pinch of gumption and a dash of ingenuity is all our storytellers need to make their own discoveries. Our first story is from Brittany Ross. Brittany is an actress, writer, stand-up comedian, and producer. Brittany is best known for playing Courtney in ABC's The Middle. Her story was recorded at the Crawford Family Forum in L.A. for a partnership show with LAist. If you've ever wondered what happens to a human when they jump off a roof onto a trampoline, you'll want to listen to Brittany's story. Here's Brittany. So when I was in grade school, I visited NASA in Houston, Texas, and when that freeze-dried space ice cream melted in my mouth, a world of possibilities opened up to me. I was seven years old at the time, and I had already seen a lot of what Earth had to offer, but I had never seen space, and I knew then I was going to be an astronaut, and I was going to live my entire life on nothing but space ice cream. And yes, I fell in love with science for the snacks. Uh, <laughs> but when I fell, I fell hard. I was crushing on black holes. I had, I was in love with Saturn and all of my friends would play wedding day. I would play launch day. I asked Santa for telescopes and he delivered. He even stuffed my stocking with freeze dried cookies and cream because like he gets me. And Cut to, I'm a junior in high school, and I'm now a competitive cheerleader because being thrown 30 feet in the air is the closest I can get to zero gravity. And, like, I'm a petite blonde named Brittany. What else was I supposed to do? But <laughs> I am, like, all astronauts, future astronauts, taking introductory physics. And I know one day when I'm an astronaut, reporters are going to ask me, who was your inspiration? And I'll say, my high school physics teacher inspired my career. And I love physics. It's applicable. It explains the world around us. And we get to light as many matches as we want. I love the smell of lit matches. <laughs> So every day I get to class early and I stand on my lab stool because that's just the kind of danger an astronaut is looking for. And I light a match 
and I hold it up as if I'm the Statue of Liberty, and I wait for everybody in my class to see me and start laughing. And then my teacher, Mr. Russell, walks in, and Mr. Russell, he's um, he's humorless. He's not a fun science person like everybody here tonight. He he just relies on the facts, and so he has no idea what I'm doing. He doesn't get me, but everybody else in my class does, and I love it. The euphoria of hearing my physics comrades' laughter echo through the lab. I mean, it makes me feel bigger than Jupiter, the biggest planet we got. And... After I finish my bit, I sit down and I listen to Mr. Russell because, you know, physics is an important step in an astronaut's career. Just with Mr. Russell, it's a very, very boring step. And then one day, Mr. Russell announces that we're going to be doing something fun. And I'm like, something fun in your class? And he says we're doing a physics video project where we have to demonstrate a law of physics out in the real world, get it on video. And I am like, this is what I'm here for. This is going to launch my NASA career, set me on a path to another dimension. And I also can, you know, put into practice my newfound physics class comedy, you know, skills. And I'm like, I'm going to make this video even more hilarious than my Statue of Liberty routine. And I know exactly what my group needs to do. We're going to demonstrate Galileo's discovery about falling objects. All objects fall at the same rate of speed, no matter their mass, something like that. Um, and <laughs> ask these people over here. Um, and it, so basically, you take two things, a chair, a pencil, and you drop them off the Leaning Tower of Pisa like Galileo, and they will land on the ground at the same time. And I'm like, okay, what better way to demonstrate this than by jumping off a chair? No, too low. A ladder, lame. We are going to jump off of my roof onto the trampoline. Uh, you know, all competitive cheerleaders have trampolines. But my physics partners are not cheerleaders, so they're a little nervous. And I'm like, guys, it's not that hard. We just, like, jump off the roof, uh, all in the name of science. <laughs> and I'm like, this is going to be hilarious. Everybody's going to love it. And so they agree to do it. So now it's the day before our project is due and we're like, we should get started. <laughs> we're 16. <laughs> so we save everything to the last minute. And my physics partners come over to my house in the middle of an ice storm. And we go down in the basement and we film ourselves doing our weigh-ins. We make graphs to show like we are all different sizes. And then we state our hypothesis that all three of us are going to land on the trampoline after having jumped off the roof at the exact same time. And now it's 10 p.m. and my physics partners are starting to freak out because they're pushing curfew. And I'm like, we got to get outside and shoot this thing. So we go outside in a blizzard and I set up my parents' this new thing we got, a tripod, and nobody had one back then. We set it up. And I start to pull the snow-covered trampoline over towards the icy roof. And my mom comes out yelling like, girls, you can't jump in this weather. And I tell her, Mr. Russell said, if we do not jump off the roof right now, we will fail physics. <laughs> and then I look back at the camera that I know is filming this entire thing and smile, thinking like, this is going to make a hilarious blooper reel. And... 
my mom is like, no way am I letting these two other girls jump off the roof. She says I can do it because I'm a competitive cheerleader and she watches me put my life in danger on the regular. And so I decide I'm going to turn this problem into comedic gold. I'm like, bring in the understudies, my sisters. I have one sister who's a year younger also a competitive cheerleader. And so according to my mom's reasoning, competitive cheerleaders are allowed to jump off the roof in an ice storm. And so she can do this. And I have another sister who's four. And I'm like, this is going to be great. It'll really show our differences in weight. And it'll really drive our point home. And it's going to make everybody feel so nervous when they think a four-year-old is about to jump off the roof. And at the last second, I'm going to throw in a baby doll stunt double and just throw right off the tramp. And so I am so focused and excited. My physics partners are on the ground waiting to clock our seconds. I'm on the roof, on the edge with my sisters. Well, one of my sisters and a baby doll stand in and it's a blizzard. And I'm like, this is the life of an astronaut. (laughs) And so my sister jumps, the baby doll jumps, I jump and we nail it. We all land at the exact same time, proving our hypothesis to be correct. And I spend the entire night editing this video on the VCR because that's how we had to do it back then. And the next day, I am so excited to show it to my class. And as they're watching it, I realize I don't even care about the science. All I care about is the laughter. And they are laughing harder than they laughed when Mr. Russell walked in with like a train of toilet paper hanging out of his pants. Like this is hilarious. The baby doll bit, it killed. Turns out tension is the key to big comedy payoffs. And I am just so happy. This feels better than the first time I tasted freeze dried ice cream. And Mr. Russell is the only one who's not laughing. Um, He's horrified by my choices. And (laughs) he's pale white. He especially does not like the blooper reel when I mug the camera and say, Mr. Russell said we had to do this. And I am standing there just like taking in all of this laughter and being like, I'm so happy right now. I love this. And that was kind of my first sign that I might not become an astronaut after all. Um, And yeah, I I didn't become an astronaut. (laughs) But that project, it did help me find my passion and my voice and my 11th grade physics project was the first of many sketches. And I guess if I do trace it all back, I owe my career to my high school physics teacher after all. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> that was Brittany. What? a character. To learn more about her, visit our website, storycollider.org. Being a storyteller on our stage is just one way to make Story Collider happen, but if standing alone in the spotlight in front of an audience doesn't speak to you, maybe becoming a Story Collider donor might be more your speed. Story Collider donors play a vital role in our ability to bring you this podcast. We're in this together. Story Collider is one big experiment that's designed to connect us around our love of discovery, curiosity, and the natural world. If you believe in the power these stories have and this mission, please donate to the Story Clutter at storyclutter.org slash donate. 
The most popular level is $10 a month, and you can make your tax-deductible donation at storyclutter.org donate. But really, any level makes a difference, and we're so grateful to everyone who can support us at Story Collider. Our next story is from Greg Pendellis. Greg is the curator of the Amphibian and Reptile Diversity Research Center of UT Arlington. He manages the largest scientific collection of preserved reptiles and amphibians in Texas, and he is also pursuing his own research. His story was recorded at Dallas Morning News this year. Greg's story is a great reminder that you don't need to wait for anyone to do what you want to do. Life's too short for that nonsense. I, for one, want to be more like Greg and, you know, just get in there and do the darn thing. If Greg's story is anything to go on, it's way more fun that way. Here's Greg. So when I was a kid, probably about seven or eight years old, I knew that I wanted to be a zoologist. There was no doubt in my mind, no hesitation. I mean, there was a short stint for about a month when I was four when I wanted to be a, a, a firefighter, but I think all kids go through that one. There was a problem with my zoology dreams, though. My family was Greek. I mean, Greek-Greek, which meant that the only acceptable career paths were doctor or engineer. That's it. So when one of my aunts or uncles would ask little eight-year-old me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and they got a resounding zoologist, <laughs> they usually said it was cute that I wanted to work in a zoo. Chuckled a little bit. But then their smile would start to fade as they got a several minute lecture from an eight-year-old about why zoologists don't necessarily work in zoos, and they realized I wasn't kidding. Despite my other family, though, my actual parents were pretty tolerant of my obsession. They were happy I was happy, even if they didn't fully understand it. And when I say tolerant, I mean very tolerant, because by the time I was in high school, I had started my own museum collection of animal parts, I had a colony of flesh-eating beetles to clean skulls, and I had a ledger of measurements and numbers that corresponded to all my, all my specimens. So yeah, they are very tolerant. And when I went to college, I was absolutely raring to learn. Getting the chance to interact with real professionals in zoology for the first time was just unbelievably exciting to me. I was absorbing everything like a sponge. Pretty soon I was working for my university's research museum, I was catching wild mice for research, and I was taking every zoology class I could get my hands on. The real thing that sealed the deal for me, though, was when I got the chance to go to the tropics to catch reptiles and amphibians in the wild on a real scientific expedition. Using my actual hands to discover and unveil things, just catching a rare frog here, a new snake there, was unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. I was hooked. I knew what I wanted to do. So as I was sitting in the airport in Nicaragua waiting for my flight back to the U.S., I was just so bummed because I was thinking, man, when's the next time I'm going to get to experience again this again, to feel this way about science again? <clears throat> and then it just occurred to me, why couldn't I just do this on my own? I was about to go visit my family in Greece for six weeks anyway. My entire family lives in Greece. And... They live on this island called Kithira, where there's many, many smaller islands that are not occupied by people. No one lives there um, that no one's ever surveyed before. No one's ever done anything on them scientifically. So I was thinking, why not just go to those and explore them, collect specimens of reptiles and amphibians, and conduct the first survey anyone's ever done of some of those places. So I called up the Greek Ministry of the Environment. I got the permits. 
I talked to my mentor at the Museum of Zoology, and I put together a kit of everything I need to preserve my specimens, and I was off to Greece. So this is how I ended up on a little fisherman's boat going toward a towering little lump of rock of an island off the coast of Kithida, Greece. And it wasn't just any island. This island is called the egg in Greek, Avko. And the reason it's called the egg is that despite the fact that it's so small, it stands a good 200 meters above sea level. So it's shaped exactly like an egg because it's so small but very tall. And the only reason anyone ever went to the egg because it was uninhabited is to collect these little yellow flowers that are very valuable and they don't lose their color when they're dried. And the locals on Kithira, the, the island where my family lives, would use those to make tourist souvenirs. And I talked to some of the flower collectors that they would go there just once a year to collect flowers and they said they would see tons of snakes on the egg. Well, this got me super excited because no one had ever officially recorded any species of anything, reptiles or anything from the egg before. I would be the first. So as we got close to the shore, and when I say shore, I don't mean sandy beach. I mean like more like a vertical rock face with a slippery little ledge that you could jump onto. The fisherman told me, when I get close, I'm gonna throw the engine in reverse so that I don't hit the rocks and you're gonna jump off. So I'm like, oh shit, okay. So <laughs> I jump off with my backpack I start clambering up the, the rocks there, and there's this little goat path that leads up the cliff to the top where there's actually some vegetation and I was hoping snakes. So I start my way up. And the flower gatherers had told me that the path was marked by little yellow chalk marks and not to stray from the path at all because it was the only way up or down the cliff and up and down the island in general it was the only access point. So I was just full of adrenaline at this point. I was about to discover a new population of snakes. The hike was tough but invigorating and the sights and smells all around me were just breathtaking. I was thinking, man, this must have been what Charles Darwin felt like. Just go, granted, okay, it's not the Galapagos, but just going to a brand new, unstudied place for the first time, everything you're seeing and documenting around you is just new. There were wild caper plants all over, those beautiful yellow flowers that the locals love so much just grew everywhere. And there were these falcons that it's one of the only breeding places in the world, that island, uh, just that breed in the cliffs on the sides of the island, just flying over my head, dozens of them. So after about a 45 minute hike of that, I made it to the top. And once I was at the top, after I walked around for another 30 minutes, I saw a tail of a snake disappear under a rock and the chase was on. I, I clambered, it was kind of like down the side of sort of like a valley of this island. I clambered down the, the rocks there, almost tripped over myself. I pulled out my little collapsible snake hook out of my pocket and I fished this thing out of a crevice where I had hidden. And man, oh man, it was a Balkan whip snake. One of my favorite snakes in Greece. Just this beautiful, fast, speckled animal, non-venomous, that's active during the daytime and mostly eats lizards and small rodents. And as I was holding this thing, a little bit of blood was running down my hand because it had bit me a few times, which I don't blame it. Don't blame it. I just fished it out of, its, out of its hole. I was thinking, I did it. I came to this place, discovered this cool snake, documented it for the first time. I found what it probably preys on because I also caught this species of gecko here, Kochi's gecko, another first documentation. And I was going to bring these specimens back to the museum at my university 
where they were going to serve as permanent records of my expedition, and scientists from all over were going to get to come see my specimens. So it was very exciting. And there's this whole little ecosystem here, just the, the snakes, the flowers, the, the geckos, the, the falcons. It was just incredible. But it was starting to get dark, and I figured I better start getting down because if I'm not down at the meeting spot in time, the boatman's probably just going to leave me. And I had no way to contact him. I was way out of shouting distance as high up as I was. Remember, you know, it's 200 meters up here, and he's down there. So I better get down. But the problem was that from the top, you, there was no markers of where the trail started. And just imagine that the whole top of the island is like a plateau with sheer cliffs on all sides, and there's not a whole lot of dips or anything that you could use to figure out where you might have come from. But happy-go-lucky adrenaline up me wasn't thinking of any of this. I was just going around catching snakes, and I wasn't thinking anything about how I was going to get back down. So finally, I found a spot that looked pretty good. It wasn't the trail. I started clambering down, and I was thinking, well, I can't matter that much like where I get down from. The trail wasn't really much of anything anyway. It was just a little goat path. Can't really matter that much. Well, it did matter. And a few wrong turns later, I found myself on the side of a cliff with the backpack full of live snakes. No idea how I got there and no idea how to get back up or down. I was still 100 meters from the ocean and the sharp rocks below and maybe another 50 meters back to the top. And I was sitting there and I was thinking, well, I'm like, maybe I should call a helicopter lift and, you know, to rescue me from here. And maybe they, would they mind having snakes in the plane? <laughs> but the problem with Greeks is that they're very, very reputation driven, like really reputation driven. So much that my grandma, when she was pretty much dying, refused to call an ambulance because she didn't want the neighbors to know, she said, that she was sick and weak. So if I had called a helicopter to get rescued off the egg with a bunch of snakes, my family on Keitha would probably never live it down. So no helicopter. Couldn't do that to my family. So I was sitting on the side of this cliff, panicking, my heart beating a million times a minute, and I kind of started beating myself up. I started thinking, man, why would I have to become a zoologist? Why would I have to come to this oversized rock in the middle of the ocean for a couple of snakes? And maybe my grandma was right and I should have gone to medical school. That last one was a fleeting thought, thankfully. <laughs> but I was sitting there and I was panicking and I was trying to calm myself down and it wasn't working. And finally, I looked down into the waves below. I happened to look down and I saw a Mediterranean monk seal, which is a critically endangered mammal. There are only three of them known to occur in the area of Kithira there. And there's only like 250 in all of Greece. So it was a pretty spectacular sight indeed. And this kind of calmed me down because despite the fact that I was panicking, the back of my mind was like, hell yeah, that's awesome. And all my excitement and passion for animals that drove me here just came flooding right back. So I think I have that seal to thank for getting off that place in one piece. And after I kind of calmed down a bit and gathered up my courage, I just decided to take the most direct route back up the cliff so I just climbed hands and feet and footholds the same way you see at a rock wall at some gyms, back up the approximately 50 meters to the top. Snake's still on my back along for the ride. <laughs> and when I got to the top, I finally managed to find my way back to the correct trail. 
and I made my way back to the meeting spot in the dark without a flashlight, uh, two hours after I was supposed to be there, completely exhausted. Luckily, the boatman was still there. He told me he was about to return to Githera to go request a team to come rescue me. He thought I died. So yeah, he's never taken me back there again. <laughs> <laughs> and when I finally got home, I told a much milder version of this story to my dad because I didn't want to worry him. And I ended it with, but I got the specimens, so it was all worth it. I can't wait to see the look on my professor's face when I get these back to the museum. And he just looked at me and said, you're crazy. <laughs> that was Greg. Isn't he wild? If you'd like to learn more about him, visit our website, storyclatter.org. Our website is just one way to connect with Story Clatter, but there are so many other ways, and we hope you'll use all of them. You can always follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Head to storyclutter.org to become a financial supporter. Or if you want to come to a live show, take one of our workshops, or want to start your own Story Clutter show in your community, you can learn all about that on our website too. The Story Clutter is very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Misha Gajewski, along with Nikisha Roberts-Washington, Jen Chen, and Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Leslie Bernson, Brian Kett, Devin Kajas, and Hoda Imam. Special thanks goes out to The Story Collider's board and staff, including Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Leslie Bernson, and Lindsay Cooper. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week, the wonderful Aaron Barker will be hosting our Christmas episode. You won't want to miss it. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>